the Spirit of Jazz podcast, where music dances with mystery, with your hosts, Bill Carter and Jeff Kellum. Hello, this is Jeff Kellum, along with Bill Carter. Hello there. We're glad that you're here. We have a special guest today. We have with us Derek Bang of Davis, California. He is the definitive biographer of Vince Garaldi, and uh, we're delighted to have him here tell some Garaldi stories. Welcome, Derek. Thank you. Glad to be here. You know, when people um, tell me that they don't care much for jazz, then um, one of my first responses is to say, what about Charlie Brown Christmas? You know, uh, what about that music that accompanies that? And people say, oh, I like that. And I say, well, you know, that's that's Vince Guaraldi. That's jazz. Well, that's right. And I was looking through a liner notes for a Wynton Marcellus album uh, called Joe Cool's Blues, which he recorded with his father and a lot of Charlie Brown music. And here's what he said. When I was a boy, the only time you would hear jazz on television was when Charlie Brown came to town. I always liked the feeling that the music put on the cartoon. Sometimes I read the comic script, and I lived the fact that Charlie Brown was always trying, even though he was inevitably met with failure, or that special kind of humiliation that was roundly cheered by his friends. Uh, and then he goes on to say, Oh, by the way, my dad also knew Vince Garaldi, who wrote the music. Um, so, Derek, tell us a little bit. Uh, tell us the story. How did Vince Garaldi end up writing music for the Charlie Brown specials? Well, this goes back to television director-producer Lee Mendelson, who won several awards for a variety of programs that he did for KPIX Channel 5 in San Francisco. And that puffed up his sales a bit, and he decided to form his own company, Mendelssohn Productions. And he set up, not in Hollywood or Los Angeles or New York, but in Burlingame, Northern California, entertainment capital of the state. <laughs> <laughs> he sank all of his efforts, financial and otherwise, into his first produced television special, which was about baseball great Willie Mays. A Man Called Mays. And when it aired in the autumn of 1963, it did very well, even though it was up against an Elizabeth Taylor TV special. Emboldened by this initial success, Mendelssohn looked around wondering, well, what should I do next? And then had an inspired thought. Having worked with the world's best baseball player, how about I turn my attention to the world's worst baseball player? And who would that be? Well, Charlie Brown, of course. Charles Schultz's phone number was in the book. These were innocent times back in the early 1960s. Mendelssohn called him, outlined his idea for a one-hour special that would kind of be a day in the life of Charles Schultz's cartoonist. And it would include some brief spots of animation. And Mendelssohn knew exactly who he wanted for that assignment, Bill Melendez, who had been animating the Peanuts characters for a series of Ford TV commercials since 1960. And they're a treasure, by the way. Some of them are available on YouTube to watch. And then once they got going, Mendelssohn decided that he wanted a jazz score to go behind specifically these animated segments. 
He first asked Dave Brubeck, who said that he appreciated the thought, but he was too busy. Mendelssohn next turned to Cal Chater, who said basically the same thing. So as Lee told the story so many times, shortly thereafter, he was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge, listening to the local jazz station. And what should come on the radio but Giraldi's recent hit, Cast Your Fate to the Wind? Hmm. And Mendelssohn thought, that is the perfect sound. Hmm. That is the sound I want. So as soon as he could, he stopped the car, found a phone booth, called Fantasy Records, found out how to get in touch with Vince. They arranged a meeting at Original Joe's, a uh, hamburger diner in San Francisco. And Mendelssohn outlined this plan. And Garaldi said, sure. I'll take a crack at that. A couple weeks go by, and Mendelssohn gets a phone call, and it's Giraldi. And he says, I want to play something for you. I got something really good here. And Mendelssohn says, okay, fine. Hang on, and I'll drive on over. And Giraldi says, no, 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 no. I can't wait. Now, quick sidebar here. What you need to know is that Giraldi didn't really read or write music. And he was worried, genuinely that if he didn't have somebody else hear him play this, that he might not remember it all properly. And he knew that Mendelssohn had some musical background. And so they argue back and forth. And Mendelssohn finally says, okay, fine, go ahead, play it. And through the phone comes the opening couple of lines of what would ultimately be called Linus and Lucy. And as Mendelssohn looked back decades later, he, he insisted that he knew in that moment that Garaldi was it and that this was going to be the perfect accompaniment for what he had in mind. Now, the Charlie Brown ending to this story is that once the one-hour documentary was completed, Mendelssohn shopped it around to the three major networks, and they all turned him down. Nobody in 1964 wanted to put the Peanuts characters on television. Go figure. Mendelssohn executed a Hail Mary play. He chopped it down to half an hour. Out went a lot of the guest stars. Couldn't shop that version around either. And it remained unaired and unseen by anybody until early in the 21st century, it was finally released on DVD by the then new Charles M. Schultz Museum. The sad news, as far as we know, the original one-hour edit is gone. Wow. No longer exists. And that one had more Giraldi music in it than what remains in the 30-minute version. In the spring of 1965, Mendelssohn gets a phone call from a representative for our Coca-Cola I know this sounds strange as we sit here today, but back in the middle 1960s, annual Christmas TV specials were a rare bird. The first one had been Mr. Magoo's Christmas special, Christmas Carol, sure. that had debuted, I believe, in 1962. And then came Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in 1964. And they both generated a lot of business for their sponsors. Well, Coca-Cola wanted some of that action. And so this rep said to Lee Mendelson over the phone, have you ever considered a Charlie Brown Christmas special, a Peanuts Christmas special? And Mendelson, yes, of course we have. 
And the rep said, great. This was on a Friday. They want to see an outline on Monday and hung up. <laughs> Mendelssohn, he loved telling this story. Mendelssohn stared at the phone for a couple of seconds, picked it up and called Charles Schultz and said, hey there, guess what? And Schultz said, what? I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. And Schultz said, what's that? <laughs> and Mendelssohn said, that's what you're going to write this weekend. Well, Schultz took it well. They got together. You know, spitballed back and forth. And a lot of the elements that became crucial to that special were outlined during that initial conference. Coca-Cola accepted the outline, bought the show. All concerned went to work on it. Mendelssohn, of course, hired Garaldi to score the entire special. They were working under the gun because there was actually significantly less lead time than one normally gets for a half-hour animated TV special at that point in time. Melendez was frantic, particularly because Coca-Cola had originally wanted an hour special. And Melendez said, no, that can't be done, but I can give you half an hour. So they're working literally up to the last moment. Mendelssohn takes the finished print to the CBS execs back in New York City, screens it for them. We are now into either very late November or very early December. The lights come up and there's silence in the room. They hated it. Wow. Why is that? They just felt it failed on every level. Children voicing the characters, that was unheard of. Adults always voiced animated characters back in the day. Mm -hmm. You know, June Foray and Rocky and Bullwinkle. Jazz music, nobody's going to tolerate that. And, and worst of worst... A religious theme running through this show? We can't air that on television. Half the country is going to be offended. Mendelssohn felt he was cooked, but he knew somebody higher up in the CBS hierarchy. So he went over their heads and pleaded his case, screened it for that gentleman who reversed the decision of his lower staff, and thus the show debuted on December 9th, 1965. Now, backing up a little bit, it's interesting to consider the fact that since Garaldi had been writing Peanuts music since early 1964, people who lived in the Bay Area and who went to see him perform in clubs had been listening to this stuff for well over a year before the rest of the country heard it for the first time on December 9th, 1965. Oh, to have been old enough <laughs> to go to a club back in the day. And that's how it started. And it's become a best-selling Christmas album, right? It's gone quintuple platinum, equivalent of 5 million copies sold. When it first aired, was the reception a very exciting thing for, for the network, or was it something that grew on people uh, in, in reruns? It was a smash hit okay. immediately, right out of the gate. It, it drew numbers that TV folks would kill for today. The rating share is actually a more important number than the actual Nielsen rating. The rating share demonstrated that half the people who were watching television during that half hour that night were tuned into Charlie Brown. Wow. Beforehand, even Mendelssohn and Melendez were afraid that they had, quote unquote, ruined Charlie Brown. Because once, you know, looking back a few years later, 
you can tell there are a lot of things about the initial edit of that special that do reflect the fact that it was put together very quickly, but nobody seemed to care who watched it. They also figured that it was going to be one and done, which was not the case. It was quickly followed by Charlie Brown's All Stars, and then It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. And then, surprise, surprise, Charlie Brown Christmas aired again the following December in 1966 and pulled better ratings than it had in 1965. Mm. And it continued to air on network TV every year until now. And thus, a half-century-plus American tradition has come to a grinding halt. Well, tell us uh, a little bit, how did Garaldi put the music together, as best you know? I mean, were there anecdotes about this? Uh, Not really. He, you know, he, he was a, an amazingly creative talent, and he had a capacity for melodic hooks that I see rarely in other performer composers. Even when he was a member of Cal Shader's quintet in the late 1950s, when it came time for Garaldi's solo, his solos were melodies in and of themselves. You could have extracted them and put them on an album and attached a title to them and you know called it a legitimate track. He also had an amazing facility for composing tunes that sounded familiar even as you were hearing them for the first time which is another rare gift. Yeah. And finally, the other important element of pretty much most of his Peanuts library, if you will, was the fact that he had been very greatly hooked on Bossa Nova after seeing the film Black Orpheus, which led to his iconic 1962 album, Jazz Impressions of Black Orpheus, which included Cast Your Fate to the Wind, which is what Lee Mendelssohn heard during that key moment. Toby Gleason, son of Ralph Gleason, the San Francisco uh, music columnist and journalist who became Garaldi's friend for as long as Gleason lived. His son, Toby, told me at one point, it's difficult to do today, but if you close your eyes and pretend that these tunes are not affiliated with the Peanuts characters, they're classic bossa nova. And that's another key to their success because Bossa Nova is very inviting and infectious and delightful and charming. And that's another aspect of Garaldi's music. It is very difficult to listen to him play anything without smiling. And in the early 60s, Bossa Nova, thanks to Stan Getz and others, uh, was, was just sweeping America. Absolutely. Garaldi was very well-timed to jump on that bandwagon. Actually, he helped create he helped put the wheels on it, if you will. Sure. What he devised for what became his primary Peanuts cues were very much a reflection of that approach to the stuff he was composing at that point in time. Tell us a little bit about, he had children singing on a couple of the soundtrack tunes. He oh. did. Mendelssohn knew that he wanted to have a group of kids who, when they sang, would sound close to the young voice actors who had been hired to voice the characters in the special. So he got back in touch with Barry Minio, with whom Garaldi, who worked on the Grace Cathedral Jazz Mass, Barry hand-selected about 10 kids ranging in age from 8 to 12 and brought them to Fantasy Studios over the course of three evenings at, they think, roughly weekly intervals. 
Only one of those sessions survives that we're aware of. And it is charming to listen to the session that does survive, which, as it happens, is devoted to Christmas time is here, as the group kind of fumbles and stumbles their way to what is finally the acceptable take that was used in the show and on the album amid much laughter and merriment and occasional embarrassed apologies from Barry Minia, which Vince greets with a, oh, you know, that's okay, we'll get it. That's what's so charming about the sessions, the recording sessions that are part of that uh, five-disc set. Nothing was taken out. Mm. So you hear the commentary, the studio chatter, and possibly because the kids were there, I guess the musicians were very polite because nobody swore at anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I remember you telling me uh, that the children were paid like $5 and an ice cream cone. Uh, per session. Per session. Per session. Yes. And uh, coincidentally, I recently discovered, if you will, uh, which simply means that we bumped into each other for the first time at uh, last October's David Benoit, Charlie Brown Christmas concert with the Santa Rosa Symphony. Um, another one of the now adults who had been one of those 10 kids, she was somebody that I hadn't discovered before. And she has a copy still of one of those checks, which she sent me uh, a scan of, and yep, $5, $5 in ice cream. And the, the problem with the ice cream was that it wasn't easy to find a place that was open at, at that hour of the evening. think is the appeal of Garaldi's music? Why do you think so many people purchase the album, listen to it? You never know until you look back if something's going to hit. Frank Camper's It's a Wonderful Life was a flop when it was released in 1946. It only became an essential part of Christmas television movie viewing because the studio neglected to retain the copyrights on the film. And it thus fell into public domain and was able to be screened by any TV station in any city, in any state, anytime they felt like it. And so very much like The Wizard of Oz, Americans became saturated by the omnipresence of It's a Wonderful Life. And all of a sudden you turn around and you realize this has become a tradition. It's not going to be Christmas if we don't watch that movie. Right. Charlie Brown Christmas charmed everybody initially, obviously, because the ratings were so good. What made it so powerful was the fact that it kept coming back. We're talking about the middle 1960s. This is long before VCRs or any other means of purchasing a copy of a TV show that you can watch when you feel like it. After the first couple of years, people clearly began to look forward to the annual December telecast of A Charlie Brown Christmas. This fed into sales of the album. Mm -hmm. Time goes by. The show continues to pull impressive ratings every year. And by the time we reach the middle 70s, the late 70s, the early 80s, 
a point during which I hasten to add Garaldi himself, having died in 1976, is all but forgotten. Everybody looks forward to a Charlie Brown Christmas. And by the middle 80s, now the next generation has joined in. And this is the point at which it takes off. And today, now that we are three generations into this process, you can stop people on the street and say, what do you do every year for Christmas? And they will say, well, we put up a tree, we hang stockings, we listen to a Charlie Brown Christmas. Right. And similarly, uh, the sheet music was not widely available until sometime into the 90s. Uh, Correct. And... About three weeks ago, I was working with a 19-year-old college student. I said, you want to learn Christmas time is here? He said, sure. So I was showing him the, the basic voicings and the, the way that Garaldi arranges the harmony. He knows the tune. He loves the tune. He's 19. This is probably fourth generation. He grew up with it. <laughs> Obviously. It's not just casual families. You were talking about that great Wynton Marsalis quote earlier. You will hear the same thing from people like David Benoit and George Winston and Cyrus Chestnut. Garaldi arguably has been responsible for turning more people onto jazz than any other jazz musician in history. Much as I admire Miles Davis, I don't think Kind of Blue has turned people on to jazz nearly as much as a Charlie Brown Christmas has. I want to ask a question as a non-musician. Certainly his, his composition skills uh, shine through his music, but well, technically speaking, was he a really great pianist? Good question. His talent is under-recognized. A lot of his Peanuts themes, and even some of the covers that he did of compositions by other people on, the, on his albums, Geraldi favored single-note treble melody presentations. Not a lot of chords, for the most part. And that can sound deceptively simple. But simple is the wrong word, because I would compare this to Charles Schultz's drawings. Hmm. Schultz did not put in a lot of backgrounds or extraneous detail. He only included what you needed in order to get out of the strip what he put into it. And I would argue that Garaldi only composed and performed what he needed in order to get the reaction he desired from his audience. Yeah. Now, having said that, Garaldi was totally capable of wailing. All you have to do is listen to the recording of the Calchater Quintet performance at the first Monterey Jazz Festival when Garaldi takes a couple of solos. He's a monster. He's ferocious. And that was back in 1958. Hmm. He certainly didn't lose that talent. Well, and he was with Woody Herman for a while, too, and uh, fit right in. Right. And that is not a trivial thing. Yes. Not just anybody gets to play with Woody Herman. Yes, Derek Bang, we're talking about Vince Garaldi. Going back to what you said about Garaldi's music brings a smile. I've been to a couple of Presby Bop Christmas programs, 
And as soon as Bill, without saying what he's going to play, as soon as the opening lines begin from Linus and Lucy, people smile. There's a warm recognition. It's more than just another Christmas carol, pardon the expression. Oh, absolutely. And it, it goes beyond his own compositions. The Charlie Brown Christmas album opens with his rendition of O Tannenbaum. I have gotten to the point where no other version of O Tannenbaum sounds right to me <laughs> unless they imitate Giraldi's quiet solo piano introduction to his arrangement of that tune. Uh, he suffered during the 1960s in particular over the fact that he was part of the quote-unquote West Coast jazz contingent, which was never taken as seriously by most critics as the East Coast jazz contingent, who the, the critics felt were you know more serious, they dug in more, they uh, experimented more. Well, okay. I mean, I dislike labels, number one. <laughs> and, and number two, I think it's a question of what you find yourself listening to 20 years later. Thanks for listening to the Spirit of Jazz podcast. This is a production of Presby Bop Music. To find out more about Presby Bop, our music, concerts, and recordings, please explore our website at www.presbybop.com. And send us a note telling us what you think about the Spirit of Jazz. We'd love to hear from you. Check in with us again next time. I'm Jeff Kellum. And I'm Bill Carter. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>